Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of April 24th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk some more about the NBA playoffs, because the NBA playoffs are ridiculously compelling. Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN will join us for that conversation. Alex Hutchinson of Runner's World will come on the show to talk about Nike's attempt to engineer the first sub-two-hour marathon. And finally, I will talk to John Kelly, the only finisher of the 2017 Barkley Marathons. He wrote to take issue with my afterball last week about the ultra mountain race. So I invited him on the show. Josh Levine, the editorial director of Slate Magazine, is off this week. I'm alone in Washington, but filling in for Josh from Slate Studios in Brooklyn, New York, is Greg Howard. He used to write for Deadspin. He is now a David Carr fellow at the New York Times. What's up, Greg? How are you doing, Stefan? Excellent. Thank you for doing this. Before we get started, one announcement. We're still taking applications for a summer intern here in Washington. You need to be available to come into the studio on Mondays and to help us with research over the weekend. If you're interested, email us at hangupatslate.com. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Greg and I will discuss the life and death of former New England Patriots tight end Aaron Hernandez, who was found hanged in a prison cell last week. Join Slate Plus for just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. The 2017 NBA playoffs are shaping up as a fantastic soap opera. Boston's Isaiah Thomas has willed his team back into its series against Chicago. Memphis coach David Fisdale went on an epic anti-referee rant. Oklahoma City's Russell Westbrook went on an epic anti-reporter rant. And San Antonio's Kawhi Leonard went on an epic pro basketball run and still wound up losing. Joining us now to discuss this and more is ESPN's Kevin Arnovitz. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the Celtics and Isaiah Thomas. His younger sister, of course, was killed in a car accident last week. Thomas wept openly on the court during a practice session before game one of the series against Chicago, then managed somehow and for some reason to play. The Celtics lost the first two games at home, 
one game three in Chicago, and then Thomas scored 33 points on Sunday, and Boston evened the series. Sports are weird. We ask athletes to play, then valorize that otherwise unimaginable ask by talking about toughness and heroism and dedication. Kevin, how do you see how the Isaiah Thomas uh, situation played out? You know, symbolism is a huge thing in sports. And so I, Isaiah suffers this un just imaginable tragedy on the eve of the playoffs. Um, so, so the timing in and of itself uh, is profound. And they drop the first two games. You can't attribute it necessarily to his state of mind, but it is highly unusual for a team, a number one seed, the favorite, one of the favorites in the Eastern Conference, to just lose two consecutive games at home. It's like it's something that doesn't happen. I, I think it's. Um, I, I'm trying to think the, the number of instances it has, and I, I, I can't even recall. And so they go to Chicago, and, and Chicago's a terrible team, and I, I think that's worth noting. They're they're just they're they're just awful. Um, they're they're not aesthetically pleasing. It doesn't work schematically. Um, it, it's sort of a loathsome assembly of talent um, that can't shoot. Uh, so it, it's even the the first two losses are even that more um, startling. And little by little, he has become to do what we all know him to do, which is he is five foot nine and that's generous. And he's able to work in these tight spaces among these seven footers um, that, that, that are kind of, it's not something you see. And I, I think when you've talked, when you talk to big man defenders who have to basically step up and defend Isaiah Thomas and pick and rolls all night, they just will tell you that it's just not something they're accustomed to doing that when there is a, basically a creature that small on the floor, um, that you just there, there's really no program for it. You, the ball is kept at a lower level. Um, you can't even swipe at it. And you're able to navigate if you're Isaiah Thomas, these, these spaces. And so, um, you know, he said last night still that he's, he's not all there, that um, he said, you know, mentally and emotionally, I'm not here. So I just feed off what guys give me. And so now it has become this this rallying cry in Boston, won two games in Chicago and is now not the series. Right. And I do think, though, that it, it's impossible not to attribute um, some degree of, of reduction in performance by Boston to the fact that his teammates, Thomas's teammates, had to be affected by what they were watching. Um, we were affected by what we were watching. Clearly, you can't perform to your peak level when you are suffering emotionally the way this man must have been suffering. You know, Charles Barkley took a lot of shit for saying that he was uncomfortable with Thomas crying on the sidelines like that. And I think what Barkley was trying to say, and far be it from anyone to defend Charles Barkley, um, but I think what he was trying to say was that he was uncomfortable that Thomas was even there, that he was crying on a basketball court instead of crying with his family. And, you know, I think that the media has been pretty restrained with this narrative and to its credit. I mean, I think everyone has sort of recognized that this is an unfathomable circumstance with horrific grief, and let's just see what happens with the basketball and treat it as basketball. Right. I I don't know. I, I think Charles Barkley has um, many um, very dated and wrong um, opinions mm -hmm. on masculinity and uh, specifically black masculinity. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think a, another huge aspect of it is that Isaiah Thomas didn't come out and score 60 points. Right. Um, in game one, he had right. a he had a good game, but he had cold spells and they they lost to a, a horrific, horrible team. Um, and so, you know, I guess the field goal narrative wasn't quite there. And then they went 0 and 2. But, um, you know, I mean, I saw a lot of people um, ascribing game three win to Kevin Garnett. You know, what did Kevin Garnett do? He left. Um, did he leave a voicemail or something? You know, it was. Uh, and. You know, people said Kevin Garnett's that great of a leader and he's that much of a Celtic that um, he really willed the whole team to remember that they play harder than everyone every single game because they put on the Celtics jersey. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think the fact that Isaiah Thomas didn't come out and do a, a Jordan-type thing um, it really mitigated the narrative. And everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'd like to think that sports are evolving toward a more humane treatment of athletes. Um, there are signs of it. We see it you know, in, in, in the responses to athletes wanting to, you know, be with their wives when they have a baby. Um, I mean, it's still not clear that it's not perfect yet, but I think we are making progress as a sports culture toward that. Um, 
But ultimately, these kinds of decisions fall on the individual athlete. If Isaiah Thomas had said, I can't play basketball for a week, I'm sure that the Boston Celtics staff and management would have said, don't play basketball for a week. All right, let's talk about Kawhi Leonard now. Oh, my God. Um, I am not <laughs> sure that I have ever seen a stretch of basketball on both ends of the court like the one I did on Saturday night. He scored 11 unanswered points to erase an eight-point deficit, and he scored 16 straight San Antonio Spurs points to force overtime in their game against the Memphis Grizzlies. Last four minutes of regulation, he shot five for seven from the field, three for three from three, three for three from the line, one rebound on a putback of his own miss, stole the ball twice. Kevin, have you ever seen a stretch like this? I I think there are people who believe that when analysts or purists say that uh, he controls both sides of the ball, that like the defensive thing doesn't really, it, it matters, but it doesn't, it, it's, it, it can't really be quantified to the extent that say offense can be. And like when you watch that series of possessions and those steals, and I think there was a cluster of them all, all at once at, at a really pivotal moment of the game. I mean, he is truly controlling the game at both ends of the floor. The t- defensive possessions were every bit as spectacular as a Russell Westbrook or a James Harden offensive possession. To say nothing of the fact that he was also going down the court and and hitting contested three pointers, but um, it was great. I, I'm an I'm a Kawhi Leonard MVP voter, uh, which puts me in an extreme minority. <laughs> And wow. I, wow. The controversial minority. <laughs> Wish I knew this before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and listen, like, I, it's, it's tough because invariably the playoffs become this referendum or this proxy. It plays out again. And so you find yourself rooting for guys you vote for, which is which is just stupid. But you do it just to kind of not look like an idiot um, should things the fortunes turn the other way. And uh, but it, it, it was a great. Because I actually I have this other theory, which is I don't think anybody watches Kawhi Leonard play. Like, I don't think people watch the Spurs when they come on television. Like, especially, A, they're not on as frequently as the Thunder or the Rockets. And B, I think people just, their eyes glaze over and they're not going to sit there for two and a half hours. So I, it, it was it was a fantastic encapsulation of everything he does on the floor. What it means to control both sides of the ball. Um, it, it was, it was, and it was fun. I mean, it's not as spectacular as Westbrook or even Harden. But there's just a, such a totality to his game that I, I love. He's a completist. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think the point about the offense versus defense is is obvious to casual viewers. You know, we see players hit step back threes, right? We see players make great dribble drives. We don't see someone make the kind of steals that he made. I mean, these are NBA players that he was doing this to. These are you know, these are the best basketball players in the world. And Kawhi Leonard was treating them like he was an NBA player and this was a pickup game at the Y. Um, those steals were remarkable. And I think they were at the level that even the casual viewer could appreciate, particularly in combination with him then picking up the ball, going the length of the floor and scoring. It was incredible to me how... You, I mean, you really, really thought that they were going to escape out of Tennessee with the win, you know. And and he, the, I mean, the Spurs to me, they they aren't that good. I I don't know what's wrong with uh, you know, Marcus Aldridge or what's happened, but you know, he he's he's not he's clearly not the player he was. It's a lot of you know older pieces and stuff like that, and it's really um, Kawhi's. I mean, it's been Kawhi's team, but to to see someone really take over in the way that he did is, you know, I I think about great offensive efforts, but you don't really think about someone doing it on both ends of the court. You see, you see it in spurts, right? You see, um, you know, uh, LeBron with a layup steal dunk or something like that, you know, or 8.9 seconds or something, but you don't see it um, over a couple minutes, you know, or over um, a half a quarter or something. And he, and I mean, he really is one of the most um, exciting and and perfect players that I've seen in my in my lifetime. Um, Kevin, you, you not uh, to say that he's the MVP. <laughs> but. Uh, the Grizzlies rebounded, and Mike Conley was otherworldly after Dave Fisdale went on uh, an ep- that epic rant 
uh, against the refs after game two. First, he ticked off a list of statistics on free throws and foul disparity, and then he built to a crescendo. And I think this is what gives it the makings of a classic rant. He capped it off with a catchphrase. Let us listen to the culmination of, of said rant. We don't get the respect that these guys deserve because Mike Conley doesn't go crazy. He has class and he just plays the game. But I'm not going to let them treat us that way. You know, I know Pop's got pedigree and I'm a young rookie, but they're not going to rook us. That's unacceptable. That was unprofessional. My guys dug in that game and earned the right to be in that game, and they did not even give us a chance. Take that for data. Boom. (laughs) <laughs> bang the table that was me banging the table I've for Dave Fisdale. i've listened to it a dozen times and it, it hasn't gotten old yet <laughs> i mean this is narrative at its finest too inspired the the grizzlies to come back and win game three and four that's the thing is that i keep looking i look back to that moment i look at game three and four and i i'm wondering if i mean i i, I kind of expect memphis to go on and win this now you know like i mean for as great as Kawhi leonard is and everything i I, I expect Memphis to win. I mean, it's kind of a thing that the Spurs always do, right? Is they sort of bow out a little earlier than they're, I guess, supposed to or expected to. But I mean, the, you know, the Memphis they 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 do seem the more you know physical team. They they they're definitely younger. They they, I mean, definitely in the last two games they look like a better team. I guess that's what happens when you win but i i wonder what is like what is the um what is like the the cost and the outcome of uh amazing speeches like that i mean can you look at that as um as a turning point for the series so one of the things that's happened and and we'll talk about it again i guess with with the restbrook thing is so the nba podium for for listeners who don't know, like what happens after normal games in most places is people gather in the hallway to talk to the coach. And then a few minutes later, there's this mass of people trying to crowd and around and get quotes from players at their locker room. So the NBA at a certain point a few years ago said, screw that. Let's just set up a little press conference room with a podium. Uh, really, it's a dais. It's not even a podium. Um, and a bunch of chairs. And that way you can just have a more traditional press conference. It'll just be easier for everyone. You don't have to like stretch your arm to get the recording uh, in your, on your little recorder. But what's happened is it's interesting. In the last few years, it's gone from press conference to really performance space. And like for in the instance of Fisdale, like I don't even think that was for the refs or the league. Like that was for a dejected locker room that was down 2-0. And just like – and one thing you'll hear from, from players is, yeah, I like when my coach like sticks – our coach has our back is when you ask them about a coach will call out the refs. You go to the player and say, what do you think of that? And he's like, I like the coach has our back. And I think that like for the $30,000, he was fined for that. Not only did it become this rallying cry for a locker room that by the way, collectively decided to cover that fine of Fizdale's. They all make, most of them make more money than he does. And <laughs> the city of Memphis went bananas. Like rather for a, t- for a team, an underdog team coming home to, Oh, with that kind of deficit against a team like the Spurs, T-shirts were printed up overnight. I went to bed and I woke up to links being sent to me from Cafe Press, from the Grizzlies themselves who were able to turn around a take that for data T-shirt with like uh, with uh, Fizdale's famous thick rim glasses on, on on over the over the catchphrase and. It was this great branding exercise, and then the arena at FedEx Forum on uh, on Game Three was just bonkers. And so, it's not even so much I think lobbying the refs or working the league, um, and it it really is about just kind of creating a new narrative in that room that then is taken out into the media, into the fan base, but most importantly, the locker room. You know, with Russell Westbrook, I'm not sure that you could print up T-shirts unless they said next question, please, on them. Um, let's listen to him going Which I would off. wear. I would wear that. would that. be a good T-shirt, though, right? <laughs> yeah. He was asked by a reporter with whom he has some history about why his team sucks when he goes to the bench. Let's listen. Yeah, Russell, I'm not trying to split you up, but twice in three games – you guys have not played well at all when you've gone to the bench. That's fine. We, and say, I'm just say, trying to figure out what's going say, on. Say, Russell, you ain't played well at all. Say, Russell and the team is, haven't played well. Don't say when Russell goes out, the team don't play well. It don't matter. We in this together. That may, that may be, Russell, but I've asked Stephen a question. Cool. And it's, it's a legitimate question. you. Next question. It's a legitimate question. Next question. 
Next question. Quote. Next question. No, I think we won't keep the microphone. I had a question for Ste I had a question for Stephen, and it wasn't answered. And I don't understand if Stephen wants to say he still hasn't said anything. If he wants to say I don't want to answer that, fine. But next question, please. <laughs> next question, please. I would wear that T-shirt too. Um, who's Russell Westbrook <laughs> playing to? His teammates? I mean, they were just called out by this reporter. I mean, is this is this a question of the reporter's an asshole, or is Russell Westbrook being intransigent? I think reporter's an asshole. Um, I think everyone knows the Thunder are also a horrible team. Um, specifically, you know, um, everyone but Russell Westbrook. I think they're unwatchable um, whenever he's off the court. I like. I don't. I don't know what is to be gained by um, by asking that of Stephen Adams. You know, why do you guys suck when Russell Westbrook's off the court? It's because we all suck, man. It's because none of us are really good. None of us can really shoot that well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it, it's, it felt to me like there was a reporter um, digging for a quote and that Russell Westbrook just stopped him in his tracks. And um, and I'm okay with that. I, I, I didn't think it was um, a fair question or one in good faith. You know, um, it, it and it did seem like the you know it, it did seem like Russell Westbrook saying "Don't split us up" was the was the perfect response to that. Uh, so I, I think nobody's an asshole. I, I think the reporter's doing his job, and I think Russell Westbrook is doing his job. Uh, the the Rockets gave up a seven zero run in the first when he went out, and then in the top, beginning of the fourth quarter gave up a nine zero run. They are, and I think it's a reasonable story to write. And I also believe that Russell Westbrook, within the confines of that performance space, did exactly what he wanted to do, which is convey to a guy who off. First of all, it's it's so poetically ironic, right? Like he took the other guy's question, like he's going to take all the shots. Right. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> but it, but it also it, it did it and it conveyed a message, which is. Russell Westbrook is well aware of how terrible the team is. Everybody in that room is, as you said, is is well aware of it. And Westbrook wanted to send his teammates a message, which is, look, look, I'll we'll deal with it. Like this is something we will deal with. We're not going to be split up by this. I'm not going to have the narrative be that there's me and then there's 14 other guys who can't play basketball. By the way, just so you know, and I, I. I just sent you guys this link and I, I don't want to run a foul of the league because these are knockoff t-shirts that are in violation, I think of, um, of NBA licensing. But this morning you can buy a next question t-shirt There it is in thunder orange over blue. It is how, how many hours has it been? Like 12 next and you, question and it's next question in the thunder colors. It is the Russell Westbrook post game interview playoff t-shirt. Uh, Russell Westbrook's next question is, who are you going to get to play with me next year? Kevin Arnovitz writes and edits things about basketball for ESPN. Thank you for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Sunday on the streets of London, Daniel Wanjiru of Kenya won the London Marathon in a time of two hours, five minutes, and 48 seconds. In a couple of weeks, on a track in Italy, a group of East African runners sponsored by Nike will try to go five minutes and 49 seconds better. That is, run the first sub-two-hour marathon by a human being. The attempt is part of Nike's Breaking Two project, and it's not without questions and controversies physical, technological, and ethical. Alex Hutchinson has been covering the Nike project for Runner's World. He joins us now from Toronto. Hey, Alex. Hey, Stefan. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for coming on the show. This is basically a controlled experiment that Nike is attempting, right? The runners, their nutrition, their clothing, their training, their location, the track, the weather. Break down for us how Nike is attempting to ensure optimal conditions for a sub-two-hour marathon. 
Yeah, as you said, it's they're trying to cover every single box you can possibly tick. So the location is is the most obvious thing. They're they're not doing it on the streets of London. They're doing it on this Formula One track, which is almost but not perfectly flat. They, they don't have a date for the the race. They have a launch window. It's going to be either May sixth, seventh, or eighth. So, and they think by having a three day window based on weather modeling, that'll give them a ninety percent chance of a, essentially a perfect day. Uh, they're having pacers, uh, an army of pacers who will run in and out to block the wind for the runners. Uh, so they're, they're trying to control a lot of the, the things that are just sort of random in the average race. And then there's some other things they're doing. In, they have, you know, uh, clothing that is supposedly optimized. But the big one that everyone's talking about is they have a pair of shoes that, that they claim that the name of the shoe is the Vaporfly 4% because they, they claim that it's 4% more efficient than, than even their best previous shoe. I guess when you lay everything out there like that, um, I don't see what is, I mean, what is the, what is to be gained by breaking uh, the two-hour limit under these um, perfect ideal conditions, you know, with the pacers and the vapor fly. Um, I don't, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem to me as a casual observer that it really counts in the same way as it were, um, as if it, you know, took place on the streets of London, you know, in some sketchers or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a fair point. I, I think th- there's a, there's a maybe a misconception really that that the history of running is is all just sort of, uh, you know, me and my friends racing to the nearest lamppost. And in fact, the history of running has a lot more in common with this kind of uh, staged event. You know, they used to hold these massive indoor marathons at Madison Square Gardens that would pack the place. And, and, you know, people wax poetic about Roger Bannister uh, breaking the four-minute mile. Well, he did something very much like this the year before he broke the four-minute mile. He used illegal pacing to run a 402 mile, which wasn't ratified as a world record, but it told him that physically he was capable of doing it. So, you know, th- th- in a sense, this is part of a long history of, of a, different, a different strain of history from the sort of mano a mano competition. It's the pushing the human limits. What can we do under perfect conditions? And it's it's not the same as 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 the Olympics where you have, uh, where it's just a head to head race. It's something different, but to some people, I think it's, 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 it's still interesting. Yeah. Nike's not alone in trying to engineer a sub two hour marathon. I mean, this falls into the same sort of quest as the four minute mile, which you alluded to, or the 10 second hundred yard dash. Um, the world record of the marathon currently is two Oh two 57, uh, getting under two hours, uh, is going to require an increase of what about two and a half percent. And for elite athletes, that is a crazy jump. (laughs) I mean, that's a lot. I mean, Nike is essentially trying to shortcut the process. And I don't really see the, the, the ethically, I don't see the complaint about trying to do that. I understand where the IAAF, the track federation may not want to sanction this as a world record, but in the interest of trying to see what the limitations of human performance are, as you just said, what's the problem? Well, I, I'll just jump in and say, yeah, yeah I, I don't see a problem with that, too, as long as you, you're sort of clear about what you're doing. It, it, it is a different thing from running it on the streets of London. And so uh, pushing the limits, yeah, it has a long history, and, it, and it's, it, it's, it's very much like what already goes on on the track. Nobody has set a world record in a distance event on the track in decades without uh, a series of you know, paid rabbits, uh, blocking the wind and setting the pace and without waiting for a perfect night. You know, so in a sense, this is just kind of trying to replicate the controlled environment of the track on, you know, on the roads, I think. I've got no problem with that. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering um, why, you know, Nike and Adidas uh, decided, you know, now, <laughs> now that, you know, that we can cross this extra two and a half percent. Um, Cause that, it does feel like, an ocean um you know what um what be, made beyond marketing this is a yeah right like wh- like why is this the t- why is this a time why is this even um achievable you know it, it seems like it's still uh, we're still years off if not decades right from uh this being a legitimate and um i guess achievable endeavor i guess yeah, yeah, that, that's a really interesting debate. And so one, one thing, some context I would add is that the marathon record has been in absolute freefall for the last 15 years or so with the professionalization of, of marathon running. Uh, you know, marathon running has been professional for maybe 30 years, but it 
the big money was on the track until about 15 years ago. And since 1998, the record has fallen like some, something like seven times, seven or eight times. Uh, it's come down since the turn of the century uh, a greater distance than it still has to go. Like it was 206.50 in the late 90s. Now it's 202.57. So two minutes doesn't sound quite so far in that context. And so there's been a building hype for quite a while. There, there was a paper in uh, an academic, so researchers have been looking at this because it's a sort of scientific question. And there was a paper in the Journal of Applied Physiology in 2011 saying the two-hour marathon, it was called the two-hour marathon, who and when, uh, sort of trying to say w what are the remaining barriers and what can be done. And it, and it was, it got tremendous interest. It got, the, the, the journal published something like 38 responses from other scientists because everyone was looking at it and saying, yeah, th this, is, this, this is in play now. It's not about to happen, but it's in play. And in terms of the why, why now specifically, my sense is, so everyone has sort of known that if you really, if you did some of the things that Nike's doing, if you really controlled the environment and the weather and the course and the pacing and the drafting, you could get a minute or two off the record, just not for free precisely, but without runners having to be faster, just by getting those details right, you could get it a minute or two. And so I think what happened here, and this again is my personal interpretation, is Nike came up with an, a, a shoe that was substantially better than what they had before. And they suddenly realized, hey, if we, if we add all that and the shoe, we might not get there, but we can get close enough to make it worthwhile. And, and by God, it will be an amazing market opportunity for this shoe. So realistically, you know, how long, how far away do you think we are from, you know, under perfect conditions, breaking the two hour um, barrier. I did a big piece for Runner's World, uh, it must be two or three years ago now. It was supposed to be a data driven piece where I looked at trends and, and the, the sort of physiology and the limits and said, when it, is a two hour marathon po possible and when will it happen? And, and in the last paragraph of the piece where, where I came down was I, I said, I think it'll happen in 2075. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I, either I'm going to look really smart in a couple of weeks or I'm going to look really stupid. Um, well, there was a, a quarter century ago, there was a Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist who set the human barrier at 157.58 for the marathon. I don't know whether he was factoring in technological advances, um, but I assume that most of that calculation was based on training conditions, nutrition, body type. Um, and and the sort of steady decline in performance, or how how times have come down in, in over over history. Well, actually, what his calculation did was this is this is Michael Joyner, who's been a real sort of inspiration to this. He he, he as you said, he planted the flag back in about 1991, saying, "Hey, we can do this." And what he did was he said, "Running is distance running is 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 mainly determined by three physiological parameters in the human body that 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 we can measure in the lab, and it's basically." sort of the size of your engine the efficiency of their engine of your engine and how how high how much of your engine you can sustain using for a couple of hours and he said we can run calculations based on individual lab tests to see how how quickly an individual person should be able to do this what if we took the best known values for each of those three parameters and what if one person happened to have you know world class or top top values in those three categories and if they did he thought he, he calculated they would be able to run about a 157, 158 marathon. So then the question was, well, how long will it take before we have someone who who hits all three, you know, pulls up all three cherries on the slot machine and 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 is world class in those three physiological parameters? So he that was a very sort of basic uh, assessment that it's it's not physiologically out of the question. No one would have to have like a you know a third leg or something to run a two-hour marathon. It just requires a really really unique individual who's fully optimized and maximized his potential. Um, and it, if not, I think what, what Michael Joyner would say about that is, is that it was a thought experiment at the time, and it was just a, to provoke this idea of maybe we should start thinking about some of the ways that we could shave off a few seconds here and a minute there, uh, and, and maybe it's possible. And when he wrote this, the, as, again, the world record was close to 207, so it was a, it was a different time. And um, Well, and not radically different, but it, it's now that we're in the 202s, for the current world record, uh, it, I think it was just a matter of time. And I think Nike maybe pushed it is, is a little aggressive in in uh, trying to do it right now. But if they didn't do it this year, someone else would have done it next year or the year after, or you know, certainly within this decade. All right, Alex. Last question: Is Nike going to do it? Is someone going to break two hours? I in will two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. 
I'll say the probability is is no. I, w- I would say 10% chance they get under two hours, uh, 50% chance they get under the current world record. And, and I would add to that 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 sort of probability, even though the odds are against them, to me still makes it worthwhile and fun to watch. I agree with that. I think this is compelling and fascinating, even if Nike is doing it as a marketing gimmick. Alex Hutchinson is a columnist for Runner's World. He's got a new book, Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights, Fitness Myths, Training Truths, and Other Surprising Discoveries from the Science of Exercise. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. It's fun. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On last week's show, I talked at length about the Barkley Marathons, the 60-hour 100-mile ultra race with 60,000 feet of elevation gain through the mountains of eastern Tennessee, and the crazy and, to me, a little bit disturbing finish to this year's race, where two runners staggered to the finish. One of them, John Kelly, said he straight passed out during his final descent, but recovered enough to bring it home with 30 minutes to spare, becoming just the 15th man to complete the unforgivingly grueling race in its 30-year existence. I received a bunch of responses to my critical take on the race. Some were supportive, others not so much. Falling into the latter category was a spitting hot email from John Kelly himself. I replied, we talked it out, and I invited John to come on the podcast. John is a 32-year-old data scientist here in D.C. He has a Ph.D. in machine learning from Carnegie Mellon, where he worked on, quote, translating the raw neural signals into usable control signals for computer cursors, robotic arms, and other assistive devices. That sounds pretty cool. He was a lifelong runner, but didn't run a marathon until 2013, and then moved on to ultra running on trails and triathlons. In October, he's going to Hawaii to compete in the Ironman World Championship. John Kelly, let's get right to it at the top. You didn't appreciate my piece on the Barkley, and I felt I was admiring about the challenge and the athletes who push themselves to the brink. You felt I was being a little bit moralistic and judgmental in my questions about the safety and the sanity of the race. I'm glad we could hug it out and that you agreed to come on the show. Before we get into the moral questions about extreme physical challenges like the Barkley, I wanted to ask you, what is it about this race that's so attractive? How does it differ from your run-of-the-mill Ironman or marathon or ultramarathon? So it's a, it's a number of ways. The one that you'll hear most commonly, uh, in, including from myself, is it's a way to really test our limits on on all fronts. You know, it's it's got mental aspects, it's got physical aspects, it's got psychological aspects, and and really uh, wherever kind of your your weakest point is in any of those, that's where your limit's going to be. So being able to find that and try to push it is an extremely uh, appealing thing to me and in addition it's it's my my home turf and i love the experience of of being out there in the mountains and being disconnected for a while home turf literally you grew up right near there yeah so my my family's had a farm there for 200 years that's right across the highway from the park there's there's a mountain alongside the course named kelly mountain the, that wow i didn't realize that the uh, larger question for me and I think for other people might be the limits here. What are people conditioned to ex- accept? In reading about the Barkley and watching a documentary about it, um, it struck me that this is its founder, um, Greg Cantrell, Lazarus Lake is his, is his pseudonym. Um, it's his idea of what would make an extreme challenge. And in the beginning, the race was shorter. Laz increased it in length and duration. And as you pointed out to me in our, in our, in our conversation on email, Everything is arbitrary. A marathon's arbitrary. Natural challenges are arbitrary. Um, as a competitor, you accept the challenge that's presented to you. What is the line for you between what's doable and what seems not acceptable or ridiculous? How do you evaluate the challenge and the risk? So it's really a matter of, of is it possible at all? You know, anyone can make a race that's absolutely impossible. That, that's easy. Uh, go run 10 miles in 30 seconds. Done. Uh, anyone can make a race that's easy. Uh, that's, that's done all the time. Most races out there, the purpose is for you to finish. So this one 
really it's it's been adjusted and it's been kept right at that edge of, of what's possible and it continues to get more difficult meanwhile we get led headlamps and packs made for this type of event and better shoes and well-trained crew so our own capabilities to do this type of thing is is increasing and if it didn't increase along with it then it, it wouldn't remain right at that edge uh, which is is evident by the fact that you keep seeing one finisher uh, every couple of years on average and that's the that is the the idea of the limits of challenge right i mean you, 18 people have completed this race i mean that's astounding it's an astoundingly low number um and it's structured to be at that edge uh cantrell lazarus lake designs this for failure um and he makes the conditions even harder with the random start time, which I talked about this year, he started the race at that one forty-two a.m. I mean, you guys must have been exhausted before you even set foot on the course, and it meant that three out of the five loops—this is five loops of, of about twenty miles—would um, be run in the dark. I get the impression in reading about Laz and in watching him talk that this is a quirk in his personality. He's not really a sadist, but boy, he really makes it as challenging as possible for you. Right. And, you know, he has this exterior persona uh, that, that can appear to, to be sadistic, but inside he is extremely compassionate. He wants nothing more than to see people succeed. But his view of success is that it, you have to have an actual challenge for success to mean anything. So, you know, call it a quirk, uh, whatever you, you might like to call it. I don't think anyone would argue that he's not a bit eccentric as, you know, really all of us that do these kinds of things are, but he, he views it as he's giving people the opportunity to truly succeed in the face of an extreme challenge. You said in one of your emails to me that you feel I was wrong to bring up the idea that someone could actually die out there um, because they're on their own in these unforgiving conditions. The weather doesn't always cooperate on these mountains. A lot of this year's race was run in rain and fog. You noted that other sports, more conventional sports, also carry high risks. In the diary of your race, and I want to read a little passage here, you talked about the sleep-deprived and sort of mentally disjointed state that you were in. I couldn't think straight or run straight, and I seriously feared that I would fall asleep while moving and wake up without enough time remaining. I was approaching 64 hours with less than an hour of sleep. I had to have sleep. There was no choice. No matter how much I tried to focus, I couldn't keep myself moving, and I couldn't discern reality from a dream. What does it feel like to be in that state? You have these competing emotions. I am beyond what would be considered sort of safe and normal in the real world. And yet I'm still propelled by this goal, this desire. It's, it's pretty difficult to, to describe sufficiently without experiencing it. I mean, it is just completely one part of your mind uh, against another. And when I say that I, you know, difficulty discerning between reality and a dream that that is, what it is you you reach this state where you're not sure if whether you've kind of crossed that line and you're just having a very lucid dream versus actually doing this and and you have to keep reminding yourself uh this is where i am this is what's actually happening and i i need to keep moving forward you ran the first four loops with gary robbins uh who failed to finish. I mean, he came in six seconds over the time, but he had turned, got turned around in the fog and his own state of, of delirium. Um, and you wrote that I basically no longer had a functioning brain. <laughs> and Gary, in his race report, talked about feeling the same, that he jumped in a river in his state that was a, an illogical thing to do in a normal state of being. Um, this does sound insane to people who are not in your world. Do you have to justify that to yourself and your friends and family, like putting yourself in these conditions? Or do people who follow the race and who support you, because it's a tremendous endeavor for an athlete to try to, to compete in something like this, do they understand the inherent risks and appreciate your willingness to take them on? 
I'm, I'm in a bit of a unique position myself in that when I first did this race, my family was completely inexperienced with this type of thing, had no exposure to it whatsoever. You know, they'd never, uh, most of my family out there that, that came to support me, they'd never seen someone do so much as a marathon. And so when I came in after three loops, looking like the walking dead, you, you know, all the, all the experienced ultra runners are out there like, you know, ah, get him some chicken soup. He'll be fine. And meanwhile, my family's panicking. Should we call an ambulance? Do we take him to the emergency room? What's what's going on? And, it, you know, it, it it can look pretty bad and it, it can sound pretty bad. And, and sure, there are some things, you know, G- Gary fording that river was definitely a uh, an ill-advised decision. But for the most part, you know, when you look at like me out there and sleep deprived and I might fall asleep while walking, okay, well, I fall asleep and I I'm there lying on the trail. There's there's no real danger in that. I mean, really, the, the only danger that I feel people really face some years out there is is hypothermia. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're you're really never more than a couple miles from a road or from uh, any sort of access where people uh, where you could find people and hypothermia occasional venomous snakes although not really that time of year but otherwise it's it's going up and downhill it's getting really sleepy and it's getting scratched up by briars which to me is you know a far cry from having a a cornerback fly across the field and drill you at full speed (laughs) yeah those briar scratches look bad but they heal right but they yeah, are dramatic they're, they're on, on film, though. Man, it looks like someone has slashed your legs to bits. Yeah, uh, but you know, a, a week or two later, my my legs are are perfectly fine. How long does it take you to recover? Uh, this year was a, a bit longer than before. Uh, physically, I'm I'm pretty good right now. I've I've still got a couple of bruised toes and a couple of blisters, but for the most part, physically, I'm fine. I'm still trying to catch up on sleep just because there's been so much with life to catch up on. Well, you've since got, you've the got race. three little kids. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've got a job. I, I work at a startup, so that, that doesn't really stop while I'm out there racing. Um, so sleep has been the most difficult part to recover on. John, you've done three of these. Now you completed the race once you joined that elite list of, of runners who have accomplished that. You're going to go back and do it again. Probably not next year. Uh, definitely want to recharge, let my family recharge. Uh, I'll never say never on a future year, but that's that's a decision for later on down the line. Is the training that much different than, than, different than training for an Ironman? You're going to do that in, in five months. Yeah, it, it is. So the, the hill training uh, really takes quite a bit of time. Uh, on, well, I guess on the other hand, doing long bike rides takes quite a bit of time as well. Um, so I've definitely gotten to the point where as far as time goes, no, uh, I guess it's, it's probably not, uh, any more of an impact just because I'm so efficient with it, doing it to and from work, doing it early in the morning and such. Um, but the, the whole ordeal is just, uh, you know, a, a, a big dedication from from my family and and really everyone who supports me doing it last question john which is does the barkley give you a sense of satisfaction that other more conventional races don't because it is this offbeat very different very personal race versus a big corporate style event like the ironman triathlon yeah it it definitely does and and that's one of the things that that really appeals to me about Barkley and about ultras in, in general is uh, just the entire experience. Every race is unique and, and the community that is out there supporting you. you. You know, when I objected to your original segment on the Barkley, it wasn't so much about the race itself. I've, I've heard all sorts of things. Well, it's not really a race. It's not a running event. You know, whatever. I, I chose to do this. It was for my own internal goals. But the, the part that I really objected to was the seeming, uh, uh, really the, the criticism of the people who were there at the gate during the finish. And, you know, those are the people who have been so incredibly supportive, enormous sacrifices for them to be there and, and help 
see me through that, uh, especially for, for my wife and my family. And, you know, if anyone in that situation, in that context, if anyone is, is a jerk, it's, it's me, uh, for, for putting them through all that training. So I just, I, I really wanted to get across that, that the people there, uh, could not be more compassionate, could not be more caring uh, about me and, and Gary and our well-being when we came into the gate, however that may appear on, on the video. Well, John, I'm really appreciative that you were willing to come and talk to me about the Barkley. I learned a lot, and uh, I'm glad that you came on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. John Kelly is an ultra marathoner. About three weeks ago, he became the 15th person to complete the Barkley Marathons in Tennessee. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. And now it is time for After Balls. I was reading about Barcelona's come-from-behind 3-2 Clásico victory over Real Madrid on Sunday, in which Lionel Messi played the hero. ESPN noted that he recorded a brace, that is two goals, which is some good soccer lingo. So I got to wondering why brace? There are lots of meanings, of course, to the word brace, but it is also, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, two things taken together, a pair, a couple. The origin of brace, Greg? Dogs. Goes back to 1430. Shakespeare in Henry VI, Edward and Richard, like a brace of greyhounds, are at our backs. I never once uh, knew, I never knew or once even thought to look for what a brace meant. It was just a brace. Brace. You know, why, why, why hat trick? Yeah. Is, that, is that hockey? Patrick is a, a different one, and we're not going to get into the, the derivation of Patrick. Okay, sorry. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg, what is your brace? Um, my brace today would have to be Arsenal's victory um, over Manchester City in extra time, uh, 2-1 uh, with an Alexis Sanchez goal, another um, Alexis Sanchez goal that propelled us um, to the FA Cup final against Chelsea at the end of the year. Um, Arsenal currently sit in seventh place in the Premier League. Um, it looks like for the first time in um, 20 years uh, that we may not finish in the top four and, and uh, qualify for Champions League next year. But I will say that beating um, an incredible team like Manchester City um, may propel us back into the top four in the league, even though the match didn't take place in the Premier League. We uh, we are currently nine points, we, I say, are currently nine points behind Liverpool, who sit in third right now, but we have three games in hand. Um, it can happen, and I think that beating um, a team like Manchester City, albeit in extra time, can show us that maybe we can go to White Hart Lane, and beat Spurs. Maybe we can uh, host Manchester United, um, who won't have Zlatan Ibrahimovic in a few weeks, and beat them. And I, I can see a path through um, where Arsenal reach the top four by the end of the year. In fact, I want to say that it's going to happen. You are an optimistic Arsenal fan, my friend. I'm not. I, I think I'm a realist, and I know that... Um, we aren't we aren't going to win the title, you know. We probably aren't going to win the FA Cup, but top four is something that we can handle. I think we are the fourth or fifth best team in the league, so why not? You there know, are a lot of wees. There were the a lot of wees in that after ball, Greg. Um, <laughs> the, the I'm just being the, honest. I'm the just plight being of the honest. American Arsenal fan is always intriguing to me. Um, why Arsenal for you? Oh, for me, it was uh, it was easy. '98 uh, World Cup. There was. Uh, a guy on the French national team, um, an elegant young black man who was extremely fast. Um, his name was Thierry Henry. Um, France won the World Cup that year. And then the next year, um, a man named Arsene Wenger 
bought Thierry Henry, um, brought him to Arsenal, and you know I decided that summer that Thierry Henry would be my favorite player um, when I was ten, and then he was at the Arsenal. The Arsenal became my favorite team. Um, you know he was the best player on it, and I've been hooked ever since. I've been you know having my heart broken um, virtually every year since two thousand five. It's been um, it's been trying. I don't know why anyone else does it, but I think I have a, a good reason. And Stefan, what's your brace? We intended to, but never got around to having a conversation about Brian Curtis's essay at The Ringer a couple of months ago about the political awakening of sports writers in the time of Trump. Brian declared that the era of stick to sports is over. He posited that while some sports writers have not stuck to sports as long as there have been sports writers, the collective mass has been radicalized to stop sticking to sports. It's a great piece. I recommend everyone read it. But it did not answer a key question. When did we start telling sports people to stick to sports? Jonathan Green's incredible Green's Dictionary of Slang gives two senses of the phrase stick to, to remain loyal, which dates to 1577, and the one that covers sticks to sports, to maintain a position or opinion to persist with, to concentrate on. He dates that to Sir Thomas North's 1579 translation of Plutarch's Lives of Noble Grecians and Romans. But the only stick to phrase Green gives separate entry is stick to one's knitting, which dates to 1738. I searched a few databases of American newspapers. The remain loyal sense of stick to sports has been around for over a century, as in this headline in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in 1918 on a story about the star player on a powerhouse Penn football team who turned down pro offers. Noted fullback is on way to Alaska and won't stick to sports. Once columnists gained sway, readers started telling them what to stick to. A first possible use was in a Pennsylvania newspaper in 1936. Don't you know that sports editors are not supposed to care about English? Why don't you stick to sports and leave grammar alone? In 1947, a reader of the Bluefield, West Virginia Sunset wrote to express displeasure with coverage of retired tennis star Bill Tilden's arrest for having sex with an underage boy. Quote, the youth who writes about sports parallels the Tilden case with the old Fatty Arbuckle affair and says Arbuckle struggles for a living now and so will Bill Tilden. Tell the youngster that Fatty Arbuckle has been dead for several days and he'd do well to stick to sports. In 1968, a reader told a columnist for the Philadelphia Tribune to stick to sports because he had criticized black Americans for, quote, expressing dissatisfaction with their deprived condition, a reminder that sports writers were often conservative and letter writers were liberal. But it's not until the 1990s that get off my lawn sense of stick to sports emerges fully and not until the mid 2000s that it starts becoming the common scold and hashtag that it is today. A few examples in 2000. One, Skip Bayless was told to stick to sports after defending the University of Illinois' mascot because he admired the courage of Native Americans. That's some good stick to sports. Similarly, I am fine with readers who told Woody Page and Mike Lupica to stick to sports. In the advice not taken category, in 2009, a TV writer described Brothers as, quote, one of the worst Fox comedies to date. Retired NFL star Michael Strahan should stick to sports. More typical, of course, is stick to sportsing from the political right. In 2006, a commander of the Sons of Confederate Veterans was quoted as saying the group would challenge the NCAA's ban on holding events in South Carolina as long as the Confederate flag flew at the state capitol. Quote, the NCAA should stick to sports and stay out of politics in South Carolina. After Hank Aaron campaigned in 2008 for a Democratic candidate for the Alabama Senate, a reader warned, quote, I think you should stick to sports, Mr. Aaron. Politics is a dirty game, and you're going to get some of it on you if you're not careful. I was a fan, but now I'm beginning to wonder. Finally, I'm not sure what to make of this fact, but the epicenter of the rise of stick to sports seems to have been St. Louis, and specifically post-dispatch columnist Bernie Micklish. In 1989, Miklas was told to stick to sports after calling Jerry Garcia a, quote, 
burned out Bay Area legend. In 1994, Bernie, quote, proved he should stick to sports and not show his ignorance on the subject of real vocalists when he said Frank Sinatra sounded hoarse at a concert. Bernie had a lot to say about singers, I guess. And finally, in 1995, after complaining about media attention on Dennis Rodman and then writing an entire column about Dennis Rodman, Miklas himself asked, and I guess asked himself, can we stick to sports, please? We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer at Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. <laughs>